firecrackers, it's Naomi and welcome to the firecracker department. Okay, we had this meeting the other night with the firecracker department core folks and I always try to ask like a question off the top to see what's going on in their brains and learn a little bit more about each other. And so last night's question was, when's the last time you laughed until you cried? This was so great because not only did I get insight into, you know, where people are coming from comedically, but I also got these links for these amazing bits of comedy. So it's been a pretty fantastic day listening and watching all of those. When's the last time you laughed until you cried? Was it over a TV show? Was it something a friend did? Please write to me, firecrackerdepartment at gmail.com. Share your link online on our socials at firecrackerdept. And let's share some laughs around Firecracker Department. Mine was Pen15. I've been catching up on Pen15 and what a great series it is. It's so subtly funny and awkward and beautiful and ridiculous and everything. And I'm here for it all. Pen15. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. And now it's Firecracker Department Real Women's Network Spotlight Time. Okay. Now we've partnered with Real Women's Network, an online streaming platform that showcases women filmmakers and content creators from around the world. So once a month, I sit down with one of the creators from the Real Women's Network platform. I've chatted with director, writer, and Emmy-winning actor Crystal Chappelle, who is also one of the co-founders of Real Women's Network. I've also spoken with Andrea Evans, an executive producer and longtime soap star, Emily L. Fadley, a queer filmmaker and editor from the UK, playwright, filmmaker, author, teacher, Brooke Berman, actor, writer, director, Tina Huang, writer, director, actor, Maram Hassler, and also actor, director, writer, Miyosha Bean. I'm just saying, I've had a lot of great talks with a lot of great Real Women's Network folk. I mean, not to mention that there's a whole bunch of crossovers, like some of the Firecracker core members have films on this platform, like writer, director, producer, actor Farah Marani or writer-actor-producer Emily Churchill and writer-director-producer Assis Sethi. I love this partnership so much, the Real Women's Network, because it gets us connected to a whole other community. If you haven't had a chance, go over to realwomensnetwork.com, check out some of those films, support those filmmakers, and then have a listen to their podcast and find out even more about them. Speaking of fantastic people, this brings us to our guest on the show this week. It is award-winning writer, director, producer, Pearl Gluck. I love chatting with Pearl so much. As soon as we started talking, I was like, oh yeah, I get her, she's my jam. I mean, we had to interrupt because she was also dealing with students and then she was also multitasking like a genius. I mean, if you think you're a multitasker, watch this woman. She is next level multitasking. Now, Pearl creates both documentary and narrative films that explore themes of class and gender and faith. Now, Pearl's first documentary feature film, Devan, is a Hasidic tale five years in the making that was developed in part at the Sundance Institute. And Devan premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival and opened theatrically at the Film Forum in New York City and is also broadcasted on the Sundance Channel. Pearl's first narrative short, Where is Joel Baum, won Best Actor at the Stars Denver Film Festival and Best Short Film at the Toronto Female Eye Film Festival. Now the turnout that I just watched, it's so good. And you watch this film and you suddenly understand so much of the conversation I have with Pearl because it is such an amazing marriage of documentary and scripted uh, storytelling. Anyway, we get into that in our conversation. But The Turnout is Pearl's first fiction feature film. And it is about uh, a trucker and he's alienated from his family. And then he encounters an underage prostitute at a local truck stop and discovers that he is an unwitting participant in a sex trafficking ring. The Turnout won Best Debut Feature at Toronto Female Eye Film Festival, another win at this great festival, and the Critics' Choice Award at the Iowa International Film Festival. By the way, this award-winning film, you can see it. See what I mean? You can see it right now on Real Women's Network. But don't go right now. Listen to this podcast first. You'll have so much more insight into that film. Pearl founded Palinka Pictures, which is a multimedia production company with a twist that aims to collaborate with artists, media makers, and educators to make a difference through the arts. And in Pearl's spare time, she is an assistant professor at Penn State University teaching screenwriting and directing. So, okay, that's a lot. I mean, she does a lot in this world, in this community, and so having an hour of her time and to find out what her story is was a huge treat. So here you are, you're welcome, my chat with Pearl Gluck.
did you start in documentary work? Yes, absolutely. And was that always like when you were growing up, were you like pulled to a vision of creating documentaries? No, not at all. One of the things that you've got that I really love, and I think this is really something that people will really gain a lot from listening to this, is the transition of documentary to feature films. Well, first we should start with the transition from a Hasidic Jewish background to making films in the first yes, place. Yes, yes. <laughs> Incredible. And the reason I say that is because I think what you're talking about is this bridge building that we're always doing as storytellers and filmmakers and yeah. being raised in a world where filmmaking at that time anyway, it's starting to shift now that everyone has a camera on their phone, but you know, filmmaking was just marginal and a waste of very precious time you could be spending on building families and doing pure work and more godly work, right? right. So, but you asked me a really good question. You asked me if I was always wanting to make documentaries as a kid. And what we're raised with is something called Hasidic storytelling. And so I did always want to be an orator and a storyteller because it was always the rabbis that were telling those stories in public spaces. The women were telling them in the more relatively significant places, which is in the intimacy of the home and to the kids. Right. So that was like, you know, so youth activism, getting kids to understand the power of storytelling to make change. That is in my blood. That's Hasidic. Yeah storytelling basically across the board with the Hasidic community or was do you think your family really nurtured that question that is a really good question so it's a good question because I think it is across the board but I don't think every family focuses on that as much like Yiddish was my first language and storytelling was very much like my great aunt was really into storytelling and she was Mm -hmm. a survivor and we'd always sit and talk also on the Sabbath like you're not using electricity so that's another opportunity to sit and talk and you know spin yarns as it were and you know so that's for sure that it's across the board but it's also specific to my family because at that time when I was getting raised in the 80s my father had a Super 8 camera and would never leave anywhere without it. Wow. So to some degree, when I tease him, I warn, I tell him it's his fault. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I ended up in film and I don't think he likes to hear that, but he was the first filmmaker in the family, frankly, because he was the yeah. ultimate witness, which is what we tend to do behind the camera of our family's growth and dysfunction or whatever or, mm-hmm. or beauty or whatever, you know, it's like we witnessed through the lens and that's what he was doing. So a combination of the storytelling plus his picture taking, which was everywhere yeah. all the time. Um, but it doesn't lead to taking a choice in your life to be in the industry and certainly not as a woman. No. Yeah. Like, not so then I, community. exactly, exactly. The way I was raised and those kind of near and dear, relatively speaking. So I don't want to speak for all Hasidic women, but in many ways we're raised with confidence in our area. So there is a strength mm-hmm. there. So, you know, that kind of, you can do it. You just make it work. You know, you, you give yourself an idea of how to push through. Um, that is very much in our blood. And if that doesn't sound like producing, I don't know what does. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think storytelling exists in all families. But I, I do think like there's there's usually somebody in the family that it acts as a historian yes, to the family. That is so true. And perhaps your father passed that down to you. That is so, so. true. Was yeah. he a historian though? I don't think he was. I mean, I guess he would. I don't know. Based on what I just yeah. said, one can think that he was. But I'm not so sure. I don't know. Well, like, did I'm you sure. feel like it was a responsibility for you? Like to go, I, I know that my family has stories. I've heard the stories. Yeah. It's my job to take this on. But like, I mean, do you have siblings? I do. And do they, did they feel the same level of responsibility for those stories? I mean, these are really good questions specifically in this world because there's like that gray space, right? Like the rituals and ultra orthodoxy is to maintain the story. And by that, I mean, like every year on the anniversary of someone's death, you try and go to their gravesite. When you're getting called up to read from the Torah, it's your name and the name of your ancestor. 
So there's always lineage, there's always keeping the story. And then Passover is completely dedicated to storytelling. But in the sense that you're asking about, no. And I think what also is interesting is like, for example, my grandmother's needlepoints, right? Not one yeah. member of my family wanted it, just me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like yeah. that with these stories, like Pearl's obsessed with these stories instead of getting married, having children, you know, living a Hasidic lifestyle. She's obsessed with these stories. So that's yeah. definitely how it started. And I feel as though I'm doing what I'm supposed to, but it's not duty bound. It's passion bound. Mm-hmm. Like I do feel like the, uh, like I've taken on the role this now that I'm a little older, I could say I've taken on the role of the arbiter. But when I was younger, I was like, I don't know. I got to do it. I can't explain why I just have to do it. And do, do you remember, was there a story specifically that you were like, oh, this one is hitting my heart? And I the need couch, to 100%, my first film. Yeah. Gone, 100%. And then the other one, which I haven't finished writing yet, which is about a young lady in Brooklyn who is trying to get into the 1986 Mets game. Yeah, the night they played the Red Sox and won. So, or was it game seven, game six or seven? So I haven't written that one yet, but that's been like kind of pulling at me. And then I've done a number of shorts that play with some of the questions of women and what I talked about earlier, their power and their agency in the community, within the community, um, whether they perceive it or not, or whether they're allowed that or not. I mean, obviously there's dysfunction everywhere. So that's one, one, I find that subject comes up a lot for me is women in their realm and the way in which they create worlds for themselves. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how that functions. So that's one thing that keeps coming up and I feel like I need to say. And then the other is this kind of activism piece where I feel like we have so much power as media makers and content creators to make sure certain things end up on screen that get other people to feel like they're being seen or understood or to give someone a sense of why they should care about something, Mm -hmm. right? I kind of think about, you know, your childhood, it doesn't seem like you strayed much from the artist goal. Was there ever a time that you strayed? Being an artist from the world that I came from and those who really uh, asking uh, how are you making money? Like, how are you, right. is this a job? You know, I've always been that person that gets asked that mm-hmm. question. So straying from what's considered the norm is my norm. So right. Right. straying from straying, no. Do you, do you find that like you have stories in your heart that, that percolate until it's the right time to create them? Yes, absolutely. Like how do you choose your next project? The turnout's a good example of your question because, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to sound cliche, but sometimes the stories find you. Like, it's not my story. Mm-hmm. I was not trafficked. I'm not a trucker. But I think as a woman and as somebody who's heard survivor stories all my life, because my grandparents are all survivors of the Holocaust, specifically from women and specifically wondering about their sexuality in those stories, um, which they never outrightly talked about. And that goes back to the cycle of shame and violence and so on. So, you know, I was dating a trucker at the time. And when I came across, we stopped at a truck stop. And when I came across a flyer for truckers against trafficking. I was like, what's this? This is the kind of activism I love to see. And specifically with truckers were like the eyes and the ears of the road. And it gives them an opportunity to rethink what, you know, company might be uh, on a lonely night. Like what's really the dark story behind that. And so I had a long conversation with the guy, my boyfriend at the time. And, you know, he was like, yeah, you know, I have stickers up on my truck that says no sleeper leapers, no lot lizards. I'm like, those are such terrible terms. He goes, but that's what they are. They choose that Mm -hmm. life. I said, yeah, I'm not so sure they do. And I think that's what we could look at together. And so he was willing to be open and go on this journey with me to find out a little more Cause he was saying, I put those stickers up so they don't bother me all night. Like he was seeing them as the problem. And I, I started to learn more and more. Like, as I started to dig, I mean, I kind of already know, like we just know as women that it's one would have to be super hard pressed to choose that lifestyle. So one wonders about that level of choice, right. And where agency really comes in. And, you know, I started to learn a lot. I started to learn about the coercion that takes place with um, addiction, the coercion that takes place with money, the coercion that takes place with family and interfamily, interfamily um, dynamics. And 
all these really dark realities that are right at our doorstep everywhere, not just in super, you know, third world countries. I mean, right here, right there in Canada, everywhere. When I started to look into it, I was in the middle of cutting another movie, but I was like, you know, Jim, we got to do this. And he was willing to work with me on it. He helped me with a lot of the research and the writing. I then ended up meeting survivors who helped me with a lot of the research and the writing. And you asked about documentary to fiction. Like, I think this is one of those films where the line isn't so clear. So what I did is I used the craft of fiction, which is a, a very strict three-act structure to some degree, as opposed to like with documentary, you still need the structure, but you don't need like us to connect with only one character, though that's helpful. And, you know, going through a fictionalized setting. So, and I took a lot of these stories that were shared with me by Regina, who actually plays Nevaeh, the main character who's being trafficked. And her mother is also somebody who's engaged um, in that world through a friend of hers and knew some inside stories. And obviously Jim plays the trucker. He is a trucker. He's never hired, but you know, I think he's just a hairline away from knowing what that's like. And so he entered that world with me in a fictionalized setting. And Barbara Freeman, who is like this huge advisor on the film, she herself is a survivor. She ended up being, and she shares her own story at the end of the film. She ends up being the advocate that comes into the truck at the end. So mm-hmm. all of this is like really a mix between what is doc and what is fiction. And yeah. because we didn't cast any actors, with the you know experience, let's say that you have, and and people in the industry who truly study the craft, you know these are people that were using these roles almost as dramatic therapy, and right. you know it was really powerful for them. But it really takes this film to a different place where you're watching people work through their stories, and I deferred at all times to what they were telling me yeah. um, would be realistic. So. That was the mix there. So this story called out to me, you know, for all the reasons I shared yeah. from my grandmothers and great aunts to the women I started to meet in Columbus, Ohio. At this time I'm teaching at Ohio university. I'm seeing Jim, like we're writing this thing. I'm going on truck, truck trips with him. My crew starts coming with me and we interview truckers and we're in a truck stop in Indianapolis. And, you know, at this point we're in, you know, truck interview, trucker interview mode, right? We're not interviewing survivors. We're interviewing truckers. So we're expecting these kind of badass stories, you know, stories from the road. And this one guy, tough looking dude, whatever that means. And, you know, traditionally masculine, tough, whatever that means. And, you know, he's sitting there with his wife, they team drive, he drives and she drives. So they team together in the cab. And, you know, he's telling me about the realities that he sees through his truck. And he talks about how at this very truck stop where we're sitting, he remembers seeing a white van going by with a bunch of girls in it. And he had a sneaking suspicion that they were being trafficked. And so he got on the TV and he out on the radio and he told all these guys that were parked there, let's stop this guy. And they all came out with bats and stopped the van. So of course I wrote that into the script. You see the white van slowly passing when my main character is going through one of his, you know, darkest moments. And he thinks he sees his daughter in the back of the van and then like kind of gets out of his high and realizes she's not there, but it could be. And we're all just a hairline away if we're not watching carefully. And then he continues and he goes, actually, I'm going to be honest with you. I was trafficked by my own grandfather, my own father at this truck stop. And then he points to the doors, the door entrance area, like the threshold. And he goes, that's where my grandfather stood and blocked my father from ever doing it again. I was nine years old. So at that time I was like on the fence. Am I writing about a character that's being trafficked in her family? Am I writing about a character that's kidnapped? There's so many, unfortunately, so many ways these predators function. And I decided based on Regina's stories, this guy's story um, and others that there are struggles in not just rural America, but places where there's poverty and lack of education, where certain choices are being made that allows for predators to move right in, which is what happens to mm-hmm. this character, right? The boyfriend of her mother kind of gets her to think this is a great idea and that it's mm-hmm. okay. And someone's watching her all the time and she's safe and you know, all that stuff and all that just to make it okay to abuse this young girl. So that's when I was like, oh my, and you can hear a pin drop because none of us were ready for that. We weren't talking to survivors at the moment. You don't have to prepare yourself. And mm-hmm. we were just talking to the truckers. They were telling us about the road. And then the next thing you know, we're talking to a survivor. And that was yeah. very eye-opening. 
So again, like that informed the story. I mean, you know, it's like you ask about the burning story to tell. I mean, how do you not tell that story after hearing these on the road? I mean, we all hear stories of tragedy and trauma, you know, daily almost. There's, there's so much out there. But for you to take the responsibility of that story as a storyteller, I think is, is, is not typical. I think a lot of people just turn away and go, that's awful. Can I be a super Jew again and quote Hillel? Yeah. You know what? <laughs> my husband's Jewish. Super Jew it up. I'm super doing it. Well, listen, that's, that's my background. That's my educational foundation. And I feel yeah. like you know, whether it's- No Confuci- apologies necessary. Yeah. Whether it's Confucius or Hillel, it's basic human yeah. ethics. And you know what he says, and I'm going to misquote is, if not now, then when? And if not you, then who? Mm-hmm. So you're right. I took on the responsibility, but I also think as storytellers, especially with experience and with equipment and the ability to make things happen, to some degree, we have a privilege and therefore the responsibility to tell it, you know, and yeah. I think this way when I educate too, like there are certain people that will never have the funds or the opening to find them, teach them how to do that. Yeah. You know, how do you access the funders? How do you find ways in which you can then go ahead and speak your truth, you know, and yeah, t- tell me about that though, with, with uh, the turnout, like what was the process of getting that made? And did you ever think it was a documentary before it was a feature film? First of all, it was magic to get it made. I mean, how I made this film on the budget that we had is only yeah. due to all the people that put in their sweat, blood and tears into it. Like behind the camera, in front of the camera, um, equipment that was loaned loan to us by Ohio University. The students that I had had at the time that then continued professionally with me through a couple years, because we shot this over the course of two summers and therefore three years. People who worked for like almost no pay to make it happen. And then locations like the truck stop was run by this woman who's in the film, who herself yeah. was disturbed by this reality at truck stop. So she said, come here and shoot. And I'll be in your film. I've, I have no problem with it. The interaction between her and the trucker about her rings was the yeah. interaction. Gemologist? Yeah, that gemology conversation I had with her when I first got there. I went to her truck stop. I sat down. I ordered some lunch with my assistant uh, location person. And we were just sitting there. Her name is Irena. And she's from the Ukraine. She was my student. And we're just sitting there with my rings, like partly the exact ones I'm wearing now. And she just starts talking about my gems. And I'm like, hold on. And I'm writing stuff down. I'm like, this is really good. I need but Because these are moments. Well, you know, how and why people connect is so important. Because that's how we look at how they disconnect, you know? And I feel like, you know, she was willing to give us her space. The truckers were willing to be in it. That's how we got it made. And we had a few angel investors that believed in us and believe in the project. A lot of not-for-profit organizational support. And like I said, uh, high university. And then when I came here to Penn State, they came on board too through my research funds. Like that's another way for indie Mm -hmm. filmmakers to make it work is to be in a university environment. And if they're in a supportive place, which I am, then they go ahead and try and help you. And that's what happened here. So for example, my teaser was cut by that, my then student. Now he's a professional editor four years right. later. So it's slick. I think he did a great job. Yeah. I mean, the editor of my film is now the, was the editor of uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. These are people yeah. that were working for like bupkis, but they really believed in it. And then, you know, did other things. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about like, um, you know, bringing people up along the way so that you're hiring people that need a break. I mean, do you feel, I don't know, I I keep saying the word word responsibility. It feels like you're very responsible for a lot of big things, like a lot of big stories. (laughs) You're making my back hurt. (laughs) (laughs) I actually love what you're saying. I love what you're saying because you're right. Like, I love the idea that somebody that you like, Gosh, you know, art, like the arts aren't easy. This is, I'm not telling anybody anything new here, but the arts aren't easy. But all we need to be told is keep going. And we need somebody to have a vote of confidence in us. So even yeah. you telling the kid that made the trailer, this is really good, gives <laughs> them the impetus to keep going. Right. I mean, I guess that kind of reflects back to my other question about like stamina. Because I think if you're creating a film for two years, there's got to be some stamina involved. How yeah. do you keep going? And I tell this to people all the time, like especially young writers or you know students at any level, like if you don't have, pa- anyone will tell you this, if you don't have passion for what you're doing in film and you're not getting paid by some kind of client, 
you better stop because those are the only two things that will fuel you. One is you're being hired, you're doing work for hire, so it's paying your rent or whatever, or you're making good money on it. But the other, which is my usual, you know, uh, modus operandi is like passion. And like you said, the burning story. And it's also because again, we're back to privilege where I have this really wonderful position that supports what they call research, which is basically my filmmaking and allows me time and the ability to work with students to make it. And, you know, the sabbatical that I'm supposedly on right now is for me to make more movies. But I also wanted to share with you like this passion and stamina, right? So once you're in that editing room, a lot of things fall to the wayside, as you know, and Uh they fall on the floor and you love them so much and you don't want them to. And it was very interesting in one of my films, which is about a Hasidic sex ed teacher who teaches young brides how to have sex and do it in a kosher way. This is a real thing. Um, but in her world, just like in mine, she is secretly slamming poetry in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, yes. but for yes. the last 30 years. So I was secretly slamming poetry, but not, so, not for so long. And I'm also wasn't an educator of like the most holy union, which is sexuality. So, you know, she's literally touching every generation there and doing her own thing. The reason I say this is I had invited someone to be an extra on that film. She's a poet. And about two months after that, she calls me and she says, hey, listen, I just got a grant and I want to turn my poem into a film. Would you be open to that? And I read the poem, which is terrific. It's called After Auschwitz. Her name is Deborah Kahnkalb. And she was open to me picking up something that dropped in the editing room for the turnout and using it this particular piece. Because we, she and I are both in this unique position where we can talk about the relationship between women's bodies who are being trafficked here in the United States or anywhere in the world and survivors of the Holocaust and women who are being trafficked a different way then. Um, It wasn't called that, but that's what was happening. And so I proposed to her that the visuals of the piece, and it's called Write Me, it's seven minutes, would be about these women that I kept meeting in trafficking recovery who were committed to covering up tattoos or I should say branding that their pimp traffickers put on them. So whether that was a barcode or name or property of, or even like, you know, cuts or anything like that, if they wanted it covered by a tattoo of their choice, all of a sudden They'd be free in some way, but if they would look in the mirror, they would still not own their own body. And of course, that sounded just like the Auschwitz numbers on my grandmother and great aunt's arms. And I was like, oh my God, I totally get this. And the the poem that Deborah sent me, she sent me that one and another one about an uncle or a cousin of hers or her, or her husband's who had his tattoo removed. And I'd never heard of that because it was always considered a badge of honor. Like I survived. Right. I never thought of it as a badge of shame. And so then I said, look, if we could bring back these tattoos, how would you feel about that? And they all meet at this tattoo parlor that's donating their time to women who want to cover up brandings and tattoos that they don't want on their body. And here's this 90 year old woman coming in, a survivor, and she wants it. I'm kind of giving away the whole story, but it's called Write Me. It It relates to what you're saying because you know, you feel that you've collected these stories. You want to do something with it. And it didn't fit. And it hurt so much that it didn't fit in the turnout. But luckily, Deborah had come along with this beautiful piece of poetry and this opportunity to put that in. So I feel like there's a lot of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, th- I think for me anyway, I see it as a responsibility. A lot, I know a lot of people like myself who also feel that way. Like, especially, mm-hmm. you know, when you take on a role, like I'm sure you can relate to this, like when you take on a role, like you feel responsibility to be authentic in that yeah. voice and represent that voice. And I think we feel that way when we pick up a camera to represent. I think it's also like part of a uh, part of a healing process too, with the stories that you're telling. Do you feel like that's, I guess that's serving your healing process in a well, in a way, because no question you know, with, with the Holocaust that's passed down trauma as well. So hundred percent. how are you finding that? Well, so you talk about responsibility, but it's not untied to the fact that this is a therapeutic experience for me too. Like there's, it was so funny because when I was making my first film, it was literally about a couch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So my, wow. my being on the couch and my giving people opportunities to sit on the couch and tell their stories is highly Freudian. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and so, yes, I think, I think with my work, I have the ability um, 
and privilege to be able to tell stories, to work some things out that are bugging me, whether it's personal yeah. or political, or as Grace Paley would say, a combination of them. You know, what, what's yeah. personal is political. So, you know, whatever that is in my world anyway, they, they connect and, and, that's, and that's a fact. <laughs> I, I mean, and then where does like teaching fall into place? Like, did you have a calling to teach or were you on the road for filmmaking and that kind of snuck into your, your path? I used to play teacher during recess in recess in under, like in my elementary school career, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, your so career, teaching, yes. I mean, as filmmakers, we're also teachers, right? And so, and yeah. uh, artists were teachers in many, many ways. And when I graduated from Brandeis, my English professor, you know, just knew I was going to be an English professor because I was very English professory, whatever that means. And so she had recommended me to some programs to do my master's and PhD. And um, I ended up going to Poland to collect stories, surprise, surprise, in Yiddish, surprise, surprise. And right. And then eventually ended up in Hungary on a Fulbright to collect Yiddish stories and start this film, The Divan. So... I think I always had the calling to teach, but didn't think of it as like something I would end up doing mm -hmm. uh, professionally. And then, yes, I was on the road and I was doing an artist in residency at um, Emory and the uh, guy that teaches, I mean, and runs the department there was like, you gotta do this. And this is one of the ways in which as a filmmaker, you can put bread on the table and make your work without having to make, you know, wedding and bar mitzvah videos. Um, or, you know, like sweat your way through working for producers or clients that you mm -hmm. may just really want to focus on your own work. And so I went back to CCNY, City College of New York, but um, Lenny Bruce called it circumc Circumcised Citizens of New York because it was the only school that was accepted <laughs> Jews at the time. We're talking about the late 50s, early 60s. It was, they, were, they weren't accepted, you know. Yeah. And so CCNY accepted them. So Lenny Bruce quipped that it was, it stood for instead of City College of New York, circumcised citizens of New York University. So that's where I went, <laughs> uncircumcised, still Jewish, and 50 years later. But I went there to, uh, more than 50 years later, I went there to get a quick degree, an MFA. It's a really intense and awesome program designed for people that are already in the industry, already know how to make films. So it's really that just to get your MFA and take you to the next level. That's when I started fiction. That's when I, that was before the turnout. That's when I started to think about ways to okay. take these stories and use a fictionalized approach. And I uh -huh. loved, I loved writing. I loved all aspects. What did you that. like about it? I just like that much like what I ended up doing years later in the turnout, but at the time I didn't know I would mm -hmm. do this. I just liked the challenge of taking real life stories and incorporating a communal narrative, like a number of different stories into one main yeah. character's journey. And they meet other characters along the way, obviously, and there are the sub-characters, the supporting characters, the antagonists and so on. But there's that one character that kind of speaks to that communal eye, that of collecting yeah. stories around an experience. And so I loved that challenge. My first one was also with Lynn Cohen, the one who's pretty much been in all my shorts. Mm -hmm. She's incredible. May she rest in peace. And this one's to her memory, but she was, she played a rabbi's wife whose only living grandchild is obsessed with Lenny Bruce. No surprise there. <laughs> and uh, wants to ride his motorcycle and, you know, just live a double life. Surprise, surprise. And so she has to handle. And at that time, there was a real case of a Hasidic man that murdered potentially accidentally his cleaning lady, his Polish cleaning lady. So I was interested in looking at what does it look like two generations after the Holocaust where Polish the Poles and the Jews are living literally on top of each other in Williamsburg, the way they used to live on top of each other in Poland. And what does it look like when the dynamic has shifted where before the war and during the war, the annihilation, um, the poverty, the power was, you know, not in the, Jew in the Jewish people's hands anymore after Nazis took over and they were sent off to the ghettos and so on. And then in Williamsburg, not that at all, it's, it's the same by any stretch. I mean, it's not slavery, but there is that undocumented Polish, you know, the Polish undocumented workers that are cleaning the homes. And so I was really interested in that power shift and if there's still like leftover third generation anger and how right. those yeah. two speak to each other. So I put them in the same room under very 
intense situations and they based them on things I heard from both the polls and, and the woman who plays the cleaning lady, Danusha Trevino, is an incredible, incredible actress, but also was a Polish cleaning lady in a Hasidic home. Right. So already right. I was playing. So you're crossing and, over already. Already. And Luzer Torsky, yeah. who plays the Hasidic young man, was raised Hasidic, also shifted out of the community, and now is an incredible actor as well. So I was already playing with those lines then in my short. It's called Where's Joel Baum? And so by the time I got to the turnout, which is even more raw than that, because that yeah, is no a beautiful yeah. shot. That is highly well-produced, um, Joel Baum. The turnout, I mean, all of it was like raw, you know? And yeah. now I'm working on a new project about something that happened in a town over from here where um, there was kind of a Confederate flag war in 15, 2015, before that became more of a thing. And I interviewed everybody involved in that and started. I'm starting to write the fiction and I'm putting in fictionalized pieces that again have to do with the communal narrative of, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but of what I know about, like my world. Yeah. And by now that's way more multifaceted than it was 20 years ago, because you get old and you, yeah. learn, you learn more shit. I mean, and you're, and you're on sabbatical. Like, this is the other thing I find, I don't know. I mean, I don't think you're alone with this balance, but like with the work that you're doing in teaching and the work you're doing as a filmmaker, uh, obviously there's tons of overlap, but do you ever find that challenging to keep your eye on the storytelling prize? Yes, because- How do you manage um, that? I know. Tell really me all your secrets. No, I, mean, I think it's like, it's the balance. Like everybody struggles. It's the balance. I mean, look at me, I'm on sabbatical. I should only be writing my script. I should only be yeah. working on my new documentary. Talk to me about what happens in your brain when somebody goes, I know you're on sabbatical. I know you're supposed to be writing your work. And can you help with this festival? What, what in but your brain goes? Is the problem. No, that's not the problem. The problem is I did this. No, that's I what I mean. Told. I'm asking your brain. Nobody, how you asked me. Nobody asked me to do oh, it. You created the festival. Yes. Not doing. alone. Not alone. And my co-founder said, take a break this year because you're on sabbatical. And my managing yeah. director said, take a break this year, you're on sabbatical. And I said, this is the part of my brain I think you're interested in. It's, yes. year, it's year three. And the third year is very important, like a three act structure yes. or like back to Hebrew. It's what we call a chazaka. It's what really strengthens something in that third year. Things in three is a chazaka, it's a strength. And chazaka. so, okay. yeah, like how, how can I not do it? How so can you say no? Like, is it okay though? Like, I guess this is what my, my challenge is that I think that a lot of folks like you, when you're like, well, I have an obligation. I don't want this festival to fall apart. I just don't think you're alone. I think we're all sort of faced with right. the script that needs to be finished. And the other thing that is our distraction always. or our other passion. Always, always. And don't forget the third piece that you keep raising in this conversation, which is the obligation or responsibility and in Hebrew, the term is achrayas or Yiddish, which is the same thing. So if you have an, a responsibility, a sense of responsibility, you end up doing these things. Yeah. And I think it's incredible to tap into what you can take on and then say, mm. no, Pearl, <laughs> to what you cannot. But I will get that. I mean, look, I knew there was a real end date to it, right? When the festival ends yeah. on November 7th, on November 8th, I am taking a break, but I'm committed to, I told you about one of the films that I'm writing, it's fiction, but I'm also working on a nonfiction film that just got another, uh, I just got a Fulbright to go to Israel and Poland to research. And it's about, of course, another woman. And it's about a woman named Sarah Schneer, who also is a groundbreaker, also is a pioneer, very much reminds me of some of those women that I fictionally write about. That's based on women I know, my grandmothers, you know, my mother's mother, yeah. my father's mother, my father's aunt, Malka, is like a huge inspiration in my life. Tough as nails and warm, mm -hmm. super warm, super big heart, single, like guess who? And she was incredible and remains so yeah. in my mind. And I feel the same about my mother's mom and I feel the same about my father's mother, very different reasons, but all three women amazing. And so here's this other woman named Sarah Schneerer who started the first religious school for women and girls because, and you're going to freak out when you hear this, because I didn't know about this. I didn't know this about her when I first 
said yes to do this film. Like I already knew I wanted to do the story about her because I went to her school when I was a kid. And even though I left that world, she and her teachings and her approach and her pioneer perspective went with me. So the fact that she would like stand up to these men and be like, we have to educate our women. But what I didn't know, and you're going to freak out when I, when I say this to you is that one of her reasons for doing it is that girls were getting trafficked to Argentina from Poland. No way. And she even wrote to Eleanor, her organization wrote to Eleanor Roosevelt in the United States at the time and said, please help us fund the school. I know you fight trafficking. And these men are trafficking these girls over to Argentina from Poland. Can you please help us? We have to create a school for them so they don't, predators don't catch them. Same thing we have right here. Lack of education, poverty, predators come right in. And so when I heard that, I just got, I was like, oh my God, of course I'm telling the story. She's incredible. And of course she was alone when she passed away. Of course she was childless, childless when she passed away. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like so many of these themes that keep coming back. And the second reason she started it is because girls were so bored and, and didn't find their place and refused to just get married and stay in the community. But what she ended up doing, but what they ended up doing is that Kajimiers was down in the south of Krakow. And then they would head up to the main center of Krakow where all the churches are, well, there were churches everywhere. And they would go and join a nunnery because they felt appreciated for their femininity and for their role in their spirituality. Like they were religious women, but the Ju- Judaism didn't have a place for them in their minds. So they went and got educated as nuns. And this is where Sarah was like, we're losing our girls and our women because we're not, you know, we're not creating a space for them to live. And this is a book. There's a book that was written by uh, an old friend of mine, actually, Naomi Seidman, who also was raised Hasidic, also shifted into another lifestyle, but continuously writes about the world that she came from, as do I. And she wrote this book and I saw the book and I called her and she said, I promise I was about to call you let's make a movie about this. And I said, no way. Do it. So I'm adapting her book. So we're going to Poland and I'm going to go to Israel. So I know I'm doing a festival now, but I also know like come God willing, December, yeah. the world allows it. I'll be going to Israel on this you know, grant. And like you were asking, like, where does the funding come from? So it's places like that where you learn about those opportunities. You try and apply for them and try and get them. I mean, I ask where the funding comes from because you're like, you're a machine. My God, look at all the things that you're doing. But I also wonder where the, the, the creative fund is coming from. Like, what are you doing in between these big sprints that you're doing to recharge and refuel? Yeah, good question. Uh, I got to get back to you on that one. Okay. Um, <laughs> I do want to go to the Turks and Caicos. How about that? But you're probably going to film something while you're there. Boy, do you have me worked out. I mean, I just, I can see my reflection. That's all I'm saying, Pearl. (laughs) My husband and I, we're improvisers. And anytime we've ever been invited to any improv festival, that's when we travel. So, or if we happen to be traveling, we were in Gadara a couple of years ago and we're like, well, let's tag on a little show in Jerusalem. How hard would that be to organize? Oh my God, can we meet in Jerusalem? We should meet in Jerusalem. You know, speaking of Canada, which we weren't, but we are now, my father was raised there after- Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So they were part of that exodus that went from Hungary. They thought they were going to stay in Budapest because it was kosher. And then, but then they realized things aren't working out under communism or whatever. So the grand rabbis like had a meeting in the Tigris hotel in Budapest. And they were like, all right, guys, we're out. And some were able to go and some got caught, like my great aunt got caught, but then eventually got let go. But a lot of them went to Montreal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, my father was about three at the time. His parents and some other members of the family moved to that kind of Tush, you know, it's named the city sect, Satmer. Yeah. Uh, custom, like that kind of group that went to that Hasidic area, Utremont area of Montreal. So I've been to Montreal yeah. almost all my life. Awesome. That was like our trip, our big trip. So where are you? Um, I'm in Toronto. Toronto. Yeah, so we, Toronto, we were in Los Angeles for a while. And now when COVID hit and my, my pop wasn't well, so we came back, but Montreal, I love, I love so much. I oh, think it's got such historical beauty and I know it's very yeah. European. It really is. Do you have time for me to my, to my wrap up questions? hundred percent. hundred percent. Do it. I mean, I don't want to stop. I have so many more questions about how you keep going and everything else, but um, they'll have to wait. We meet again. Yeah, we meet again. A glass of wine. Absolutely. Okay, fill in the blank. What to me a firecracker is? 
My great aunt Malka. Malka. I love the name Malka. That's fantastic. If this was a movie, if your life was a movie, what has been the climactic turning point that changed your future? My life has been a movie. My first film is my story, but up to a certain okay. point. My biggest turning point up to that film was sure. my transition from the Hasidic community into the world that I chose for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. What has been your best mistake and what did you learn from it? Deciding to be a filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> and you're still instead learning. Continuing, instead of continuing in law, I was pre-law. Were you? Oh my gosh, that doesn't surprise me. That well, doesn't surprise me. What's something that people don't know about you? What they don't know about me most likely is that I love salsa dancing and that I imagine myself to be a really terrific salsa dancer, but I'm not. And I'd love to be on, uh, what is it called? Dancing with the Stars? Oh my gosh, yes. Oh, I love that. Me. Oh my Hear God, that. I think I would just die. You're that universe? What's something that you haven't done, but you know you have to do? Make my next film. Yes. Yes. Where, where do you find your power? What makes you feel powerful? Oh, such a good question, especially today. My ancestors. Yeah, they're with you a lot. I think huh? about these ladies. Yes, a lot. I mean, the men too. They're amazing, but specifically the ladies. Which ones? My great aunt Malka, my grandma Frida, and my grandma Illy, Ilona. I totally get that. My grandmother lived to be 105 and she is so present oh every time God, I... Oh my God, I love that. Yeah. Uh, what's been the best advice or the worst advice you've ever gotten? The best advice I ever, I ever got was to breathe. Just breathe. The worst advice I ever got... Yeah, I could see how things that may not have been the best advice turn into it because you learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that seems classic in like a positive thinker like you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a positive thinker, but thanks. I mean, you know, you're moving forward. I think that there, there's a level of hope that you constantly have in all your work, right? Like you're not being defeated by the stories that you're telling. You're being fueled by them. True. I mean, as a woman, the best advice I can give to women in their mid thirties or younger is freeze your eggs. Because when you're ready to have kids, you're going to want your own eggs. <laughs> I wish someone Did told you me that. that? Nobody you freeze told your me eggs? my eggs. It wasn't in as much as it is now. And that's my advice to women. Would you have had kids if you'd frozen eggs? Absolutely. Do you have kids? No. But can you relate to what I I'm think, saying? I think that the best uh, piece of advice or best thought I had around kids was somebody said, whether you have kids or you don't have kids, you'll regret both choices. <laughs> that's really and good and I think that's probably the closest to truth that I can that's I can awesome well I have enough nieces and nephews and grandnieces and nephews thank god to keep me busy but yeah. it's very different when you have your own kids and for some reason yeah. that is something I really wanted to do later in my 30s and by then I wish I was like born 10 years later because I would have known to freeze my eggs right yeah. got it my final question is advice but it feels like you're giving your advice to yourself already is freeze your eggs was there any advice that you would have told yourself as a young pearl, probably before the egg freezing idea, but like, is there any advice you would have told yourself as a creator? I think everybody says this. And so I'm going to be another one. I think we question ourselves so much. And I wish I had known then what I know now, looking back that I didn't have to question every single move. Just do, just go for it. And I did go for it, but not with all this doubt. We really second guess ourselves too much, especially mm -hmm. as, as women and women are forging a path ahead. That's what we're doing. Amazing. Uh, I know you have to go. I've so enjoyed speaking with you. Go same. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good luck with all your festival work and all. Oh, my gosh. I'm just going to be watching over your shoulder to see what Let's you do. Let's just say to be continued. I'd love that. Yeah, I'd love that. I like that. <laughs> all right, Pearl. Be well. All right, Have take an awesome care. afternoon. Thank Bye. you so much. I'm so thankful for these conversations because I really, I really get jazzed by them and they carry me through to the next creative project. As I said, Pearl's super busy, so I'm really thankful that she had some time to sit down and chat with me. You can follow Pearl at Palinka Pictures or head over to palinkapictures.com. Now you can go over to Real Women's Network to actually watch the turnout. And you absolutely should. And of course, 
Make sure you're following Real Women's Network. They're the best. Find them on Instagram at Real, R-E-E-L, Women's Network, or on Twitter at R-E-E-L, Women's N-E-T-W, and the number one. In all cases, you can just check our show notes for the link. We got you. We'll be bringing you a new creator from the Real Women's Network every month. Watch out for those voices. Share them online. If something resonated with you and hit your heart in a, in a way that sort of surprised you, let them know. And don't forget to watch out for these voices. And of course, stay tuned to our socials at Firecracker D-E-P-T for all the announcements of all the magical things going on at Firecracker Department. Thanks for joining me. I hope you join in again. Till then, go on out there, get creative, take some sort of creative action today, and look after yourself. I'm Naomi, and thanks for listening to the Firecracker Department. Winnie Wong is our Firecracker head producer. Follow her at Wonder underscore Wong on Instagram and Wonder underscore Wong 8 on Twitter. This episode is edited by Shane Stoltz. You can follow them at Shane Stoltz, all one word, and Shane with a Y. This intro was written by the one and only wonderful Winnie Wong. That's right, she's a triple W. The rest of the team comes at you from Toronto, Los Angeles, Austin, London, Dubai, and truly from all over the world. Get into the full Firecracker Department core team at firecrackerdepartment.com slash about because we're always updating and we're always growing. Stay tuned to our newsletter for advanced updates on our monthly meditations, upcoming mentorship workshops, live script department readings, festival partnerships, weekly writing workouts, and dates for 2021, and so much more. There's lots going on in Firecracker Department. Now, whether you're a first-time or a long-time listener to the Firecracker Department, we always, always want to hear from you. We love hearing what quotes, the specifics, the nuances of things that stuck with you. We mean it. We really do. And we respond to every single thing that comes our way. If it gives your brain goosebumps or it piques your curiosity or makes you want to stop and write something down, send it back to us or our Firecracker guest or both. I mean, everybody likes to know that when they put something out into the world, that it resonates. And if it sparks something in you, use that creativity to take some creative action. Share it because it just reverberates, you know? If you see somebody being creative, that might spark somebody else's creativity. So pay it forward. Thanks also to Jeff Malutinovic and Igor Korea for our theme music. And thanks to you. Yeah, you, sitting there, driving there, walking there, working out there, and taking time to listen. We know there's a lot of options out there and we really appreciate you choosing us. We hope to see you at maybe brunch, maybe the writing workshop. And until next time, thank you for listening to the Firecracker Department. We'll see you next time. 